The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. So a bunch of years ago, I had a horrible time with a colleague. We're going to call him Sam because that is not his name. Sam was so hard to work with. He didn't return emails. He dropped the ball in commitments. He took credit for other people's work, which I just really think is the worst. Now, I loved this job. I really think the job would have been wonderful were it not for Sam. Around that time, I started working with this great job coach. And of course, the first thing I brought up was Sam. I really wanted her to help me solve the problem of Sam. But when I walked her through my litany of issues, she just said, Jesse, there's always a Sam. That phrase has become a mantra to me because it's pretty much true. Anywhere I've ever worked, there's always a Sam. Our guest today is Amy Gallo. She's an expert in conflict, communication, and workplace dynamics. She hosts Harvard Business Review's hit podcast, Women at Work. She's got a new book called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And as soon as Amy entered the studio, well, I told her all about Sam. Here's Amy. Put very simply, we don't show up at work as our best selves all the time. And that that goes for the Sams, that goes for us, the Jessies and the Amys, right? We show up with baggage, for lack of a better word, right? Esther Perel calls it an emotional resume. And that emotional resume doesn't always align with the other people's emotional resume. And sometimes there's someone like Sam who lots of people don't get along with. And you can probably point to a few personality traits or behaviors that Sam displayed that were problematic, not just for you, but for many people. But sometimes it's just really about the way we interact. Maybe they remind us of an overbearing father or a friend who we had a huge breakup with in college who we never forgave. Or, you know, there, there can be all of these triggers and moments in, those, in our interactions with people that just aren't comfortable and, and actually are downright uncomfortable and even stressful. So, you know, if you walked into, I I say this to my daughter, who's a teenager, it's like, you know, if you got along with every single person in your class, I would think there was something wrong with your class, right? Like there's just that diversity of how we approach relationships, how we think about the world, how we view the world, how we view politics, how we view relationships, how we view the work we do together. That's what makes work exciting and stressful. Relationships are so important to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in the past, uh, the sort of dominant thinking around them might have been that they were static or accidental. You either lucked into good ones or you lucked into bad ones. That's right. Yep. And that way of approaching this is somewhat Mm short-sighted. I think that the idea that you introduce is that relationships offer us all kinds of opportunities. Mm. Um, And we have a lot of agency and a lot of leeway in managing them to the best outcome for what we're trying to accomplish. That's right. And I'm so glad you're saying that because that is such an essential part of the book is that 
Don't believe that relationships happen to you. You are an active participant in them. Now, you can actively participate in really constructive ways, and that relationship still may not be great, but you're actively participating in it. The idea that we're subjected to these interactions or to these dynamics or to these coworkers is it's disempowering and it it you know steals away our agency and that's when you get into the real stress it's funny when you were telling me about your career coach or your job coach i thought her response was going to be well just sam's one person cuz i think that's the other piece of it right is that we get so focused on that one person who's pushing our buttons, who we're having a really tough relationship with. But I'm guessing the majority of your relationships at work, aside from Sam, were very positive, even fulfilling, maybe joyous. And we get so stuck on the ones that are hard because of our negativity bias that it they take over our mind and they do make us feel helpless. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say it's also true within a lot of organizations that your success or failure at an organization may disproportionately rest on the opinions and actions of a very small number of people. Mm-hmm. How do you know when actually it's toxic enough that your best move is to leave? Mm. The answer, of course, is it depends. And I hate that answer for any question. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to depend on what what you know about that person's role in the organization. As you say, how much power they wield in that organization, whether you have other strong relationships, right? So I think you can have one really toxic relationship, but if you have a lots of other positive relationships where you're getting the credit you deserve, you're getting the recognition, the visibility, right? That toxicity could maybe put be more um, sort of put in a corner, could be boundaried. Um, but if that person is powerful, if they have everyone's ear, if you um, don't feel like you can really put some boundaries around it without impairing your ability to do your job, then then the question is, do I need do I need to leave? I wish there was a checklist of like, okay, seven sleepless nights plus powerful person <laughs> plus you know. I wish there was like a nice formula where it was like find another job. Honestly, yep. sometimes what I advise people to do, and this is mostly friends, is I say, well, just go through the exercise of trying to find another job and see how you feel, whether that's just starting to brush up your resume or having a few informal coffees with people to ask about other opportunities out there. Because I think once you start looking, you will get a sense of like, oh my gosh, this feels like such a relief that I won't have to deal with my version of Sam ever again, or... Um, you know, or it might feel like, oh, wait, no, I don't, I love this job. These are the things I love about it. It's just this one thorn in my side I have to figure out how to deal with. Yeah. You talked in the book about an early experience you had Mm -hmm. with a manager. You said it was early in your career. You had, I think, a a small child at home. And uh, the story did not go where I thought it was going. Mm -hmm. I actually thought as I read the story that you were going to talk about your decision to leave. Mm -hmm. But instead, you actually talked about how you made that work. And I wonder if you might explain that a little bit more. Like, why did you choose to stay? Yeah. I I, I rehearsed my quitting conversation every month from the, the second month of that job until I left, which was about 18 months later. Um, and ultimately, I realized that I did enjoy the work. This manager certainly had a, a lot of influence over my day-to-day, a lot of influence over my happiness. 
but I was able to put emotional boundaries around that those interactions in a way that I in retrospect I think I was learning a lot about how, not just how to deal with someone who was difficult for me but also about you know managing up and handling clients in a, in a situation that I didn't feel was always healthy. Like there's just so many lessons to be learned. I'd love to say I knew that I had that vision and that's why I stuck it out. Um, <laughs> but more than anything, it was that I was like, this is stressful. This isn't comfortable every day, but I'm learning. I like the work. I like the other people I interact with every day. And I wasn't really drawn to something else. I'll admit there was also part of it that I had a young kid at home. And I was like, they, there was an amount of flexibility to that job that was really helpful to me in that moment. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this somewhere else. Or it's it's funny be- that you use the word admit there, mm-hmm. as if that's somehow going to take away from the credibility of your answer to the question of why would you work with this difficult person? Yeah. Because the thing is, our our jobs and our lives always exist in full context, right? Yes. And maybe you opt in to working with that difficult person, even though you know that it's going to be difficult the entire time you work together. Um, because there are other things about that job that really work for you right then. And that's totally valid, right? Yes. No, and thank you for pointing that out because it, it feels like an admission in part because I often advise people don't get stuck. Don't feel like you're stuck just because you have the flexibility or just because, you know, your salary is a certain amount. You can find that elsewhere. And truth be told, I probably could have found um, a job that afforded me the same flexibility. I just didn't want to, right? Like it just took, it would take so much effort at the time. And I didn't, I think what really allowed me to stick it out as long as I did was that I didn't feel stuck. By rehearsing that quitting conversation, I was then making a choice not to quit. And right. and I think that was critical because I think the minute we feel subjected to stuck, then it's, then it, you just, you know, you go down the rabbit hole of negativity. That's when you have the sleepless nights. It's like you you just feel powerless, and that's a horrible feeling. Yeah. So your book is structured around eight archetypes. Mm-hmm. Explain to me your, your thinking around the eight archetypes. Yeah. I really wanted to get people the advice they needed for their specific situations. What I was hearing when I was doing talks and workshops based on my first book, which was about dealing with conflict, was that people, you know, love frameworks, they loved tools that would allow them to resolve conflict at a at a high level. But ultimately, when those frameworks and tools weren't working was when they were dealing with a specific situation with someone who was pushing certain buttons or behaving in certain ways. And I knew from my work as an HBR editor that there was research that lots of people had done about these specific behaviors and how to counter them or how to deal with them or how to react to them. And I wanted to get that specific advice to people. And I thought they're a delivery mechanism to help people feel seen, one, that they're struggling with someone who's got the same patterns of behavior, but then also that they're getting the advice they need tailored to their situation. Now, my hesitation about the archetypes is that I'm not a fan of, you know, personality assessments or sort of putting people in in certain categories that, that are then dismissive or that yep. then lead to confirmation bias. Right. Um, also, when you make this point, um, the archetypes can overlap. Somebody can be multiple things at one time, which makes everything that much more complicated. That's right. Well, 
And they can be every single one of those archetypes. They could also be something not even covered in the book, right? They, and I do really try to make sure that anyone who's dealing with someone who maybe defies categorization also has tools and, and principles they can use to, to navigate the relationships. But also, like, we are those archetypes. One of the sort of secret messages in the book, and maybe it's not so secret, is we have all resorted to these behaviors at times for whatever reason, right? I've behaved passive aggressively. I've certainly been the know-it-all at times. I've been the political operator who's really focused on my career and doesn't care if it affects other people's careers. And so my hope is not only that people get the advice they need, but that they also realize, "Mm, you know what, we're not all our best selves. (laughs) And we're all prone to behaving in these ways. And if we recognize that we can actually change our own behavior so that someone else doesn't need this book to deal with us. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more with Amy Gallo. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. I noticed something as I was reading Amy's book. I kept seeing aspects of myself in the various difficult coworker archetypes. And, you know, I started to think, look, I, I don't want to be anyone else's Sam. I mean, I'm not saying that it all has to be perfect. Perfect isn't the point. Here's Amy. Yeah. Well, it's just always messy. (laughs) It's always messy. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect. And, I mean, for for decades, the idea, and I I still have trouble wrapping my head around the fact that we believed this, but that we would show up at work as someone who has no emotions and no expectations for a relationship, like that you would just drop who you are and show up at work just to work, just to be that robot or just to carry out the tasks. And I think when I look back at like old HBR articles, I really think we believed that. Well, yeah. And that was also because work was a fairly homogenous experience mm-hmm. and also a fairly short experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And both the agreement yeah. about what work is, when we'll do it, how we'll do it has totally changed. And as you point out, 
it is not homogenous. So we, we're going to, you know, encounter people who we've never encountered before um, in terms of demographics or identity, right? And then that that also then challenges us to interact in new ways that that many of us don't feel equipped for. Well, it feels like so much of how you deal with challenging people lies in that area you're just describing, which is not actually what action do you take with them, but how are you processing what's going on? What are you noticing? And that is where I think your archetypes can become very helpful because they give us a language for trying to name things that just generally make us uncomfortable. And it's my experience that once you can sort of figure out, well, why am I uncomfortable? You sure have a lot more agency when you decide whether and if you're going to react to it. That's right. Right. Well, in having the language to say, okay, this is what I think is going on. I think this, I'm dealing with an insecure boss, or I think I'm dealing with someone who's an extreme pessimist, right? Is then, like you say, you can say, okay, well, what about that exactly bothers me, right? What of it? What of that behavior is posing a real problem? Do I have the power to change that? What What will it I say if I could say something, right? And then it's a series of thought experiments around what would it look like to respond? How would I feel about that? Because I think ultimately, you know, I don't need to tell you or anyone listening this, like you can really only control your thoughts, behaviors, reactions, and maybe not even control your thoughts, but you can pay attention to your thoughts and you can control your behaviors and actions. So you're not going to give someone else, you know, the a prescription for therapy and they're all of a sudden going to show up as a different person at work. Instead, right. you're going to change how you interact. You're going to change your end of the dynamic, which will hopefully, ideally, nudge them into more productive behavior. As I read your book, I thought so much that it was also a meta discussion about boundaries. Mm. And so I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on the role that boundaries play in getting along well with difficult people. I can't emphasize enough the importance of boundaries. And in, in fact, I sometimes think the the subtitle of the book should have had the word boundaries in it because, it, you know, as I said earlier, it's not always going to go well. And you can try really, really hard to do your best, and you cannot guarantee that other person is going to respond in kind. Is I mean, sometimes you do everything that you think is right, that you're in a line with your values, that, that evidence shows should work, and the person actually worsens their behavior, right? They become more difficult to deal with. And that's, the boundaries are so key, both in terms of, okay, I've tried and this isn't working, so I need to, a different tact. And that might be logistical boundaries of I only interact with that person over the phone because they're nasty via email, or I try to minimize the number of, you know, minutes I spend in meeting with this person, or they might be emotional too, which is just, I'm not going to let this get to me, right? And I, I think the thing the thing I fall prey to so often is that when I'm dealing with someone who pushes my buttons, I see it as a reflection of who I am and what I'm capable of, right? I ask myself, well, why can't I deal with this? Why can't I make this better? Or what about me is made this person behave this way? And the boundary there is, is like, wait, this person's behavior should not be a judgment on who I am and my capabilities, right? Let me look at the 99% of other relationships I have that are actually positive and helpful and joyous and, you know, give me energy 
that those are the the reflection of who I am. And so then it's an emotional boundary to say, okay, wait, like I just I can't only I can only take so much of this in. That's one of the things I do encourage throughout the book is just you can only engage with unhealthy dynamics so much before you really start to experience the true and real and physical impact of that, or the costs of of having to deal with that stress day in and day out. And so you've got to put up those boundaries or you're done. Well, so you mentioned choosing to interact with somebody in a different format. If you find that talking to them doesn't work, mm-hmm. leave them messages. If you find that email doesn't work, I sense but have no research to prove this point that uh, flattening our conversations with each other over the last couple of years through digital form formats um, is not helping us get along better. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that. I wrote this book during the pandemic and um, was doing the interviews for it during the pandemic. And I really saw that if things were already strained, it was making them worse Right. Mm-hmm. And I do, you know, a lot of people told me about really strong relationships. And that that happened to me, too, in the pandemic. Some of my coworkers became really close friends because we were having this shared experience. But I think it's it's a little bit like the lights got turned on in the room and we saw all the cracks and and some of those cracks got worse. So I do think the the it, and, and there's real evidence that shows that when we interact with people um, via Slack or email, you know, it's something where we're not seeing their faces, hearing the tone of their voice. We have a lot less empathy, and it's not—it's yeah. not firing those same neurons that that get fired when we actually look someone in the eye or share a laugh together in the same room. And so, that I do think is a big risk. And I think some oftentimes, if you if you're dealing with someone who you believe aligns with one of the archetypes, you have to ask yourself, okay. What's the context in which we've been interacting, right? And not just not just the organizational context, but also the the medium in which we're we're interacting. And how may that impact the way we're hearing each other or not hearing each other or seeing each other as humans? And that's yeah. that's the ultimately, I think one of the things, if there was another sort of big theme from the book that I really hope people take away is we are humans interacting with other humans. And it's so easy to just decide, slap a label on someone, right? Like they play the victim, I'm done with them. And and yet you have to remember we're, we're contributing to that dynamic. They are a human that has the whole, whole set of things going on in their life that you don't see every day. And you, you if you want to improve the way you interact, you have to decide to see them as a human. And you have to actually sometimes demand they see you in the same way. Well, and you talk about needing to resolve to be the person to take that first step, which is hard on one's ego. It really stuck with me because it's something my wife um, has embraced as a value that our family should hold. And I believe it in theory. I really, really, really do. But I spend most of my time saying, you know, Francis, no, no, I I refuse. (laughs) I refuse. This feels hard for me. It's so hard for me to put my ego aside in any Mm -hmm. dynamic with another person, personal or professional, and say, I am going to take the first step toward you. Do you have any tips and tricks for how to make that easier? Yeah. You know, I think that's what it feels like is sometimes we have to swallow our lumps or be the adult in the room. And I do think the... What can help is that, 
again, not re- not deciding that this one interaction is who you are, right? Because it can be easy to say, oh my gosh, I'm someone who just rolls over. I act like a doormat, right? Look, I had to subjugate myself in order to get along with this passive aggressive person. But the reality is that how you are as a person, the values you represent or hold dear is the accumulation of all of your interactions. So you know, if in the majority of your relationships, you don't treat yourself like a doormat, you know, treating yourself like a doormat for five minutes in order to open the the conversation with someone with a know-it-all, for example, right, who you just want to try to at least form a minor connection with so that you can get to the bigger issues, it's not the end of the world, right? It doesn't have to be a pattern. That's one of the things I remind myself is that my ego is intact, right? It, it gets fed from many other sources, not just this one relationship. So I can let my ego take a little bit of a hit I can, or put it aside just as long as it's temporary, as long as it's with the intention and goal of something bigger and that I care about, whether that's kindness or human connection or just getting this project done, whatever <laughs> that goal is, I think it feels less a little like, oh, I'm I'm this sort of person who does these things that aren't good and more I, I'm strategic about the way I interact with people because ultimately I want to connect. I don't want to blow the whole wad here because the people need to go out and get <laughs> your book, but give us a tidbit, something to take home. Yeah. So there's the chapter's principles for getting along with anyone. And this is this is the chapter. It has nine principles, the principles we need to return to over and over, not just when we're choosing how to how to interact with someone, whether they fit the archetypes or not, but when we're in it, because it's not just a one and done. I wish it was one difficult conversation, and then the relationship was fixed. Right. But it's it's an ongoing process. And this this chapter has two of my favorite principles in it, one of which is to really think of this as an experiment. So saying, okay, I have a set of tactics I can use. I'm going to try one out. Let's see how it goes for two weeks. Maybe I even make notes. Maybe I open a Google Doc and say, oh, that worked, that didn't, right? But then just treat it as an experiment over and over of what can I learn about what works and what doesn't. What works for me? Like, did I feel like too much of a doormat in that interaction? Okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Oh, did they actually become much more cooperative when I focused on the underlying message instead of the way they were delivering it? Yes. Okay, that worked. And then just continue to refine over and over. And I think ultimately, by doing that, we also then develop the interpersonal resilience that when I am faced with someone who's challenging for me, it's not going to do me in. I I have the confidence. I have the courage. I'm able to experiment, right? I'm able to try it out and and see what happens. There's a bit of a gamification to it that really yeah. appeals to me. Rather than what's going on be about my relationship mm-hmm. with Sam, it's about my relationship to yeah. improving, um, which is, is just a lot more interesting to me. I'm more curious right. about it. Because who wants to spend their time thinking about what's wrong with Sam and how to fix Sam? <laughs> right? Like That's not fun. My husband's a therapist. I'm sure he would find that fun. But you're right. It's like it's growth oriented too, right? How do I improve as a human who interacts with other flawed humans? And then you do something with Sam that works and you're like, oh, I can use this at home, (laughs) right? Or like, oh, I can use this with my mom, right? And then you're sort of building your arsenal of tools that that really work for you. So you have a second principle you're going to share with us before we let you go. Yeah. And this one, this one I like because there's a lot of research around gossip. And I think this this is um, one of the things that I 
find myself going to when I talk about sort of unproductive behaviors when you're dealing with mm-hmm. with someone who's pushing your buttons, which is that I want to gossip about them. I want to find someone who also deals with them. I want to believe they feel the exact same way. I I want to I just want to make sure that my ego stays intact and that that person gets labeled exactly what they should be labeled. Now, there's research that shows that there are perfectly good reasons for doing that. We do get this this sort of connection, bonding that happens from, from gossip. Of course, when someone sees the world the same way we do, we feel aligned with them. We feel, um, you know, fulfilled. But, that, but, the, but really gossiping about that other person starts to lead to that confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And... And then instead of seeing you as Jesse, I see you as Jesse, the passive aggressive person. So everything you do is now seen as as passive aggressive. And if that person picks up on the fact that you're gossiping about them, then then you're really going to worsen the relationship rather than improve it. So the the advice is to avoid gossip mostly. And and I say mostly because I think there are benefits to it. And I think you just have to find the right person to do it with, someone you really trust, someone who's going to poke holes in your theories and not just say, oh, my God, you're right. Oh, they're horrible. Oh, I'm so sorry you have to deal with that. But we'll say, okay, I hear you. But why do you think they're doing that? Like, what could be a rational reason for their behavior? Well, what if you tried this, right? We all need... Those aren't the people I want to gossip with, I Amy. I know. I know. And it's not. it becomes not gossiping, right? Then, and then it right. becomes... Productive. Productive, exactly. But that's what we should yeah. be doing. That's really what yeah. we should be doing. We can gossip about them outside of work. We just can't let it cement our view of them. Like, we still have to have that growth mindset of they can change, I can change, the dynamic can change. As I listen to you, I think... Like maybe the important thing here is to bring my attention to what's happening when that happens, right? Gossip is actually pretty pernicious yes, um, for all the reasons that we emotionally need it. And so if you can't quit it tomorrow, be gentle with yourself and at least put your attention on what you're actually doing. Yeah. I would also suggest you ask yourself after you gossip, like, do I actually feel better? Like, because in that moment you do, but then like, has anything really changed? Like, just having an awareness of like, what role did it serve? Did it actually serve that? And would I choose to do something different next time? Thank you, Amy. Uh, It was wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm glad to be on the show. That was Amy Gallo. Getting Along is available wherever books are sold. And you can hear Amy anytime on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast, wherever you listen. Okay, so for office hours this week, let's talk about our Sams. How do you handle difficult coworkers? And what do you do to avoid becoming one? Can you even tell if you are one? We'll meet Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern on the LinkedIn news page, or you can email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. If you like this show, please follow it and review it wherever you get your podcast. Share it with a friend. Thank you so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor are delightful to work with, always. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And this week's episode, it's dedicated to Sam. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. People tell me that baby jail is a short period of our lives. It's true. 
Um, I will believe that in the future when I tell other people that, but yeah. right now it's just interminable. Yeah. So. Well, as a, as the parent of a 15-year-old, I will tell you, there will come a time when you need to wake them up, which I have to say was like, rev- like that, the idea that I would somehow <laughs> need to actually encourage her to be awake as opposed to constantly getting her to try to sleep.